from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose for some reason to follow the Baha'i way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Daniel Lincoln a Baha'i who grew up in sub-Saharan Africa since he was an infant. He came to the land of his birthright, the United States, for high school and university. He then went to England to get married and a Ph.D., and he and his wife first went to Australia after their education was finished, then went to Romania where Daniel worked for the U.N. organization UNESCO. He and his family are currently living in western Massachusetts, and he's consulting with a partner in the field of social and economic development. I started the interview by asking Daniel to describe his growing up years. I grew up in the Central African Republic, which as you know is in Central Africa, and then in Cameroon, which is really at the the corner, if you will, of of, uh, Central and Western Africa. I spent the first 16 years of my life in, in that part of the world before coming back to North America. Now you say coming back to North America, but were you you were born in North America? I was actually born in France just before my parents moved to Africa, but I, I was a periodic visitor to New England because both my parents are from here. So mm. I I would come back with them every summer or every other summer. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you moved to Central Africa? I was two months. Okay. <laughs> yep. Okay. What were the circumstances that you found yourself in Africa or Central Africa after being born for two months? My parents had decided to move to Africa and to Central Africa in particular to really serve the Baha'i community there and to be more active in in supporting their Baha'i community generally. Mm -hmm. There's no clergy in the Baha'i faith, so they found ways to support themselves there while, while they were there. Mm. Uh, my father was trained as a lawyer, so he re- mastered French and learned Sango, which was the local language of the Central African Republic, and started practicing law in Bangui, which is the capital city of that country. And my mother is a musician um, and composer and ethnomusicologist, compu- composed music for the most part. Mm. This on, in addition to both of their Baha'i commitment in the country, serving on various mm. Baha'i bodies and committees and so on. Do you know the story on how each of them became Baha'is? My mother uh, went to Mills College in the Bay Area, in mm. California, and mm. uh, learned of the, ba- the Baha'i faith there from one of her friends. And she and my father were childhood friends from New England. So my mother told my father about it. Your mother was a musician and a musicologist. Was she a, a professional musician? Yes, my mother uh, received professional training as a musician. Uh, in mm-hmm. her, her education. And mm-hmm. she took, I would say, an immediate interest in, in forms of musical expression in, in Central Africa as a result. Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. wrote songs and she 
uh, became interested in rhythm and in percussion, which, as you know, was a central part of of, of the African musical tradition, and mm. composed uh, several albums of her own mm. during that time. Now, how is it that they were in France when you were born? I think my parents had uh, very international interests quite early on, mm-hmm. and, and um, I believe that when my father finished law school, they were already thinking of, of moving somewhere else, and he happened to speak pretty good French at that time, and I think he found a job with uh, a law firm in France, mm. and that was the first step. And I think they, they stayed there for a few years and, and uh, refined their interests a little more and decided to um, move on to another French-speaking country. Uh, and and uh, I, th- I think that it was part of what they were after, but not the whole thing. And I think the whole thing was really to to go to somewhere like the Central African Republic for them. That was their dream. And, and you may not know, but what was it that attracted them to Africa or the Central, Central African Republic in particular? I think that, uh, honestly, it was the fact that there was a very small Baha'i community there at that mm. time. They had mm. heard that, and they were dedicated to the idea of um, supporting the development and growth of a Baha'i community. Mm. Being based in a French-speaking country, they, they recognized that that was one of the places that they would be better placed than others to go. And mm. I think that was really it. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. Mm. So it's a very different a very different stage in the life of the Baha'i community than, than uh, where we're at now. Mm. Well, I think at that time people went to the places that they felt they were most needed in. And I think now perhaps Baha'is of my generation are more content to stay where they want to be and focus on ways of serving the Baha'i community that way. I see. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you first lived in the Central African Republic when you moved there when you were two months old, but you also said you grew up in Cameroon. How old were you when you left the Central African Republic? I was 11. Go ahead. I was in Cameroon from 11 to 16. Mm-hmm. At 16, I, I moved uh, permanently uh, back to the U.S., at 16? Yes. Okay. What kind of school did you go to in the Central African Republic? Uh, well, in both the Central African Republic and Cameroon, I, I went to French government schools, mm-hmm. uh, which exist throughout the French-speaking world. Um, so most of my classmates were either Central African kids or French kids. And mm-hmm. I grew up speaking English at home and uh, French uh, outside. So French was the language of the school system. Absolutely. So, so yes. So then, were you taught at home English grammar and all that stuff, or how? Where did you learn the English language from a grammatical point of view? I really had to work on that when I returned to the U.S. And actually, when you were sixteen. When I was sixteen, right? So you don't you don't sound you don't you didn't sound like you do now. I might have sounded like I do now, but I couldn't write the way I can write now. Oh, really? Example. Yeah. yeah. I was certainly comfortable with spoken English, but I, I didn't much of, as you said, my grammatical training or literary training mm. in school all focused on French language and you know French books and things like that. So it, it was a, a big uh, it was a big effort for me to sort of uh, Im- improve or balance my language related abilities um, on the English side when I mm. when I returned and. Mm. That is, in a way, why I returned in consultation with my parents was to um, 
to pave the way for college, which mm-hmm. we all knew was was coming up. Right. I took a few years to to accelerate or, or <laughs> redistribute my abilities a little yeah. more on, on the English side. Mm. Cameroon, in some ways, was I think I mean I, I remember it very fondly, and and you know those were my teenage years, and uh, was really one of the best times of my life, mm. I would say. And and Cameroon itself. Uh, some of your listeners may know this is is a fascinating and beautiful place, which occupies a very unique geographical and cultural position in Africa. It was an amazing place to be a, to be a young kid, really. Uh, and I had a travel opportunities while I was there. I was uh, being a Baha'i. I was integrated into the fabric of the Cameroonian Baha'i community, and thus, uh, to some degree, in Cameroonian society itself, which was. A wonderful insight for mm. me, and, and uh, mm-hmm. a really lasting influence on on who I am now as an adult. And can you describe in some ways how that is? Well, I think the emphasis in Cameroonian culture on on music and on togetherness and on inclusion of others and on courtesy and consideration in in the African way. That is to say, a certain warmth and openness and unquestioning acceptance of the other, I think, mm. has really colored my perceptions of of what is nice and mm. what is right and what is, is uh, courteous. And I think we Anglo-Westerners can often be a little short or impatient in, in the ways in, in which we deal with others generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, or with the elderly generally, or with strangers generally, and and mm-hmm. all of these, I think, are dealt. All of these social issues are dealt with, I believe, in in much more depth and with much more refinement uh, in in the African cultural context. Interesting. So I think that's an important lesson that mm-hmm. I I was privy to as a as mm-hmm. a as a young person. Right. And what part of Cameroon did you live? Uh, I was living in Douala, which is a which is the sort of economic capital of Cameroon. It's a big port city uh, on the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. I really traveled uh, most of the country, and from north to south, Cameroon spans the, the climatic range as well, from mm-hmm. from you know rainforest in the south to yeah. savanna and a little desert in the north, and right. mountains and highlands in between. So, so at sixteen, you left Cameroon. What was the what would you say your the first impact on you when you arrived in the United States? This is probably going to be funny. Uh, I the first impact on me was the great surprise at the relative absence of black people around me, uh, which again is ironic given the fact that I'm Caucasian. But I think it was really shocking to me not to be in in an you know in an African ethnic environment anymore but in a predominantly anglo environment sort of sort of being part of the majority rather than part of the minority yes yes to a certain yes that's right and and i i you know my african i was always acutely aware of my what i presumed to be the challenging experience of my african-american friends in school and being for example the the only one of a handful of african-americans in a room or in a movie theater or 
uh, on the street and realizing that, that, that most of my, the great majority of my white friends here in the United States w- would not understand what that is like or what that feels like right. or the extent to which reaching out or being friendly and warm and open can really help. Mm. In fact, so I had a, a very unusual position of, of uh, insight, I think, yeah. in, that, in that respect. Mm. And where did you return to when you came to the United States? Back to New England. I came mm. to New Hampshire, in fact, and went to boarding school in New Hampshire for two years. Mm-hmm. And I visited frequently with my extended family in the Boston area and New mm. Hampshire seacoast and mm. um, Cape Cod and to some degree in Vermont as well. And that's really when I got to learn more about about New England as a whole, and about you know Thanksgiving, and <laughs> about all these <laughs> all these standard fair cultural yeah. items that that we yeah. we you know have here, and yeah. all, all of these staples of New England identity, really, you know, mm-hmm. which I knew of a little bit, but did not really appreciate. And I'm very grateful for and and mm. appreciative of now, I mm. think, in particular. Yeah. So I've really come to love this part of the country very much, actually. So that has a bearing on why you're still here? Yes, part partly, the, yes. Yeah. And, I, and, and Massachusetts in particular. Mm-hmm. I, I've, and most of my family is from Massachusetts, and this is really the one place in, in the United States that I've always considered myself from and most mm-hmm. comfortable in. Mm-hmm. And that I, I have a great love for also just as, a, as an interesting place, as a beautiful place, as a socially experimental and uh, open place mm. and as as a, a state of this country which which does and always has done interesting things yeah now it's interesting you you describe new england that way but i know that uh, new englanders can tend to be not the most friendliest and you came from a culture that very much was like no appointments necessary to visit people <laughs> oh that's right Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I had I had the opposite experience, too, because I, I later moved to England. New Englanders are very informal compared mm. to the English. Mm. And so it, it's yeah. just, it's a matter of degrees, really. And <laughs> right. I slowly moved further across the spectrum. Okay. Um, yeah. But I, I think with New Englanders, it's, it's uh, just a matter of, of, of appreciating, and as it always is, a, right. a matter of appreciating and understanding the, um, the cultural underpinnings of every situation and, and right. what people mean or what people yeah. understand right. by certain things. And, and we all mean and understand different things. And that's, I think that's really important to, mm. to bear in mind. Yeah. So you went to college? I did. Where'd you yes. go? I went to California. I went to a liberal arts college in California. My two years in New England whetted my appetite for the United States in general, and I realized sort of what a big and diverse country I really was, was part of. Mm-hmm. And I was keen to discover another part of it. I, I moved west for a few years and, and spent my undergraduate years in California, in mm-hmm. Southern California, which, of, of course, is a, a whole other uh, world mm. uh, that I, I needed to get my head around and, right. and, and learn to love as yeah. well. But I, yeah. I do love that one as well, yeah. also. And you for, can't beat the weather there. Nope, the weather is, the weather is to die for. That's, yeah. That's yeah. Clear. People complain if it's like 5 degrees above 70 or 5 degrees under 70. <laughs> it, but again, I think that, you know, 
the weather such as ours here in, in Massachusetts is, is character building. Yes, very, <laughs> very much so. Very much and, so. and there is something to be said for that. Again, over time, you, you learn to love it for what it is, just, right. like, a, just like a friend or a sibling yeah. or a spouse or a partner. You right. learn to love them for, for what they do offer and right. not for what they don't. Yeah. In some ways, I've noticed that New England doesn't have some of the environmental extremes that peop- that other parts of the country seem to be experiencing fires and hurricanes and drought. And, you know, in some ways, it seems like New England is quite blessed with the current environmental changes that are going on at the moment. Yes, I think so. I, 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 I think you're right. I think that New England is a very special and unique place and, mm. and has been really forever since mm. since the pre-American days. I mm. think it's always had a special spirit and a special feel and has been in, in the early days of our country the birthplace of all kinds of special and, and important things mm. and ideas and people. And I, I really believe it, it remains that way. Just has a really special place, I think, in, in the uh, collection of different spaces and, mm-hmm. and cultures that, that our country is. Mm-hmm. I, I think that New England is really different. And in Massachusetts mm-hmm. in particular, I was mm-hmm. reading a book in a bookstore a few days ago about Massachusetts, a children's book, in fact, and, mm-hmm. and all of the noteworthy or interesting things that have happened in Massachusetts since, you know, the 1600s, essentially. And, and I was fascinated. Mm-hmm. I, I really I really do believe there's a, a pattern there of, of free thinking and and uh, experimentation and discovery and pushing our, our social and cultural limits further and and wow I mean it's it's wonderful it's yeah. truly impressive I'm, yeah. I'm I'm really delighted to be a part of it and, mm. I, and sincerely. So, what college did you go to, and what did you study? I went to a small liberal arts college called Pomona College outside Los Angeles, and I studied history and art. I was I studied African history which was a, mm. perhaps a given, given my upbringing in, in that part of the world. But that was a fascinating discovery for me because I really had no idea about modern or ancient African history for that mm. matter. I, having lived there, I had been to school in the French system and I had learned all about France. <laughs> and I, I knew nothing about the history of Central and West mm. Africa. Yeah. It wasn't until I came to California that I started reading about it. Mm started making sense of some of the things that I had seen while I was in Cameroon, for example, but not known to recognize for what they were, such as old German plantations from the German colonial days or colonial buildings left by the French or the British or old forts on the beach along the coast in different West African countries Mm. that, you know, used to be slave trading posts, for example, I, I was actually blissfully ignorant of almost all of these things, both as a child and just as a product of the educational environment I was in. Right. So that was really a new layer of yeah. uh, discovery for me, I would say, yeah. to learn about the African civilizations and kingdoms of from the Middle Ages onward and the, the, the rise of Islam in, in Africa and Trans-Saharan trading and the colonial period and the slave trade and mm. all of these different things that I recognized, of course, very fast, but I, I mm. had not really put together by myself. Sure. And the second interest I, I, I followed and, and developed while in college was art. And again, mostly based in 
the artistic traditions of Africa again. But I really developed a personal interest in photography and painting and printmaking and took as many classes as I could along those lines mm. and experimented a little bit with a style of my own. And, and that naturally was influenced by many of the things that I had seen or read about or witnessed again in, in Africa. Right. But could not have been possible in any other environment than a, a liberal Southern Californian one. So yeah. again, I think I had to go there to put together some of the different influences that I, I had recognized or felt uh, thousands of miles away. And mm. I, that's probably a um, true statement of the, the world in which we now live, where many of our boundaries and distances and, mm. and dimensions have collapsed or have become, are becoming flatter and flatter. Yeah. Now, growing up as in a Baha'i family, you know, you were raised as a Baha'i, was there a point in your life where you had to independently find the Baha'i faith for yourself? And if so, what was that like? Well, absolutely, there was a point, And the Baha'i teachings, in fact, make it very clear that every individual must accept responsibility for his or her individual pursuit of the truth, whatever that may be. And for Baha'is, that moment begins from the age of 15, I do remember clearly my parents explaining to me when I was 15 that the time had come for me to make up my own mind mm. and begin that process of decision-making and discovery. Clearly, they were behind themselves and had raised me that way, but it was up to me. That was a challenge in a way because I had adopted the, the Baha'i faith for myself uh, without really thinking about it and then actually realized that I did need to think about it very carefully because I had to accept sole responsibility for that. Mm. <laughs> Whereas my parents had taken complete responsibility, if you will, for my own spiritual development until that point that I mm. was now gradually going to be on my own. I took a few years to really think about it, to consider whether or not I was prepared to identify with the Baha'i faith as, as fully as my parents did to consider the, the lives or family lives or possibilities of many of my friends who, who were not Baha'is, to try to make out any differences that I could perceive in between my parents' habits and, and practices and, and those of the parents of my non-Baha'i friends. Mm -hmm. That was all an interesting journey for me and, and in time led me to recognize that I was very happy to identify myself as a Baha'i. Mm and to accept responsibility for that decision and to move on, so to speak, on my own, uh, mm -hmm. of my own accord right. and my own life. Mm. And what age was that, would you say? I was about 16. Mm -hmm. I think it varies wildly by sure. the person, uh, depending sure. on how, how things happen for them. But for me, it was about a year or two of thinking about it and, and trying to differentiate, I think, Truth be told, to differentiate between the core, the spiritual core of being a Baha'i and what that is about, and the social or habitual aspects of Baha'i life, which are you know related to that, of course, but but are not the central matter. Mm -hmm. 
It's very easy to grow up, I suppose, as a Baha'i or as a Muslim or as a Christian or as a Jew and to become just accustomed and acculturated and assimilated in a community sense without necessarily getting to some of the more intense and complex, perhaps, or powerful core ideas of the spiritual heart of that community mm. and to engage with those. Mm-hmm which ultimately I think is something that we all must do in life and, and, and at one level or another. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe that's really all we're here for, in fact, at the end of the day. Right, yeah. What happened after college? I was not sure of my uh, professional path after that. My grandfather recognized that I was yearning for some time off a little more perspective, and he generously gave me a small sum of money for a plane ticket, which I used to fly to the Pacific and to some of the French-speaking islands in the Pacific. And I went alone, and I I stayed as long as I could on a tourist visa, which was three months. That was a very useful time for me to try to consider the whole of, of who I was at that time and not just the college part, but also the New England part and also the mm-hmm. African part and also the Baha'i part and try to think more clearly about how to bring them all together as harmoniously as possible. I had also met my wife and she was studying in England and we, we decided to get married and, and I applied for graduate school in England. Mm-hmm. And we, we got married and mm-hmm. I, I moved to the United Kingdom. Mm. In nineteen, uh, in that's right, nineteen ninety six, mm. and spent three or four years there as a graduate student. Now, what Pacific island or islands were you? I in? went to French Polynesia, which is chiefly known for Tahiti, but also for uh, several different island groups, including the Marquesas Islands, the Tuamotu Islands, the Society Islands. I traveled a little bit between some of those as well mm-hmm. while I was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very slow uh, pace of life in a semi-rural environment. It's an interesting thing to bear in mind when we think about development or about developing countries or what it's like to live in you know, a less industrialized environment than the United States. Time is not at a premium. People have relatively large amounts of time at their disposal. It it takes large amounts of time to get things done, even Mm. small things. There's a a change in rhythm and and a change in possibility and a a change in your worldview as a result. I really recommend that to Mm. to anyone to see themselves or put themselves in a drastically different environment from the one in which they usually are. And see how different they are or they become in those circumstances. And frankly, I think it helps or it helped me understand much better what it is like to live in an environment or a society where $5 is a lot of money or where it takes a couple hours to get to the post office and mail your letter and get back. These are things that we absolutely take for granted here and that are wonderful in the sense that we don't have to put up with them, but the great majority of the human race lives in those conditions. Mm. And I think it's something that we need to bear in mind. 
we are uh, saturated with sugar and caffeine and, and money and stimulants of all kinds. And everyone else around us on the planet seems slow moving by comparison. But you know what? If you only had a quarter in your pocket and you only had one meal a day and you had to walk for two hours to get to the post office or to the nearest electrical outlet, Mm. things would be going pretty slow for you too. Mm. And the temptation for us to judge or to be satisfied with ourselves or to believe that we are somehow exalted above other people in our achievements or our genius or our entitlements, I think, is, is very tempting but fundamentally wrong. So you went to graduate school in England? I did. And you, yes. were, you were there for how long? I did. I went to graduate school for about four years. I had initially signed on to a master's program mm-hmm. in education, which took me one year, and I slipped into a PhD position, as often happens when graduate students pursue a master's degree, and the, the PhD is looming behind it as the next peak to, to get over, and... It has its own attractions uh, intellectually as a challenge. I was still there because my wife was still there in medical school, and it was not yet time for us to leave, and it seemed like a logical thing for me to do professionally also. So mm-hmm. I took the plunge, and that took me quite a while. And what was your focus? My focus was international education. I, I was interested in understanding more about education and its role in in development and its role in in developing countries. I was very interested, again, coming from an upbringing in sub-Saharan Africa and all the ties between education and colonialism and the role of education in the independence era for African countries. And I saw for myself a possible career in that world and wanted really to develop my my knowledge and skill base in that area. So I I pursued my my PhD in England, but I did the research for it back in Africa, this time in West Africa, in Senegal. I spent about four years as a PhD student, and and about one year of that was spent back in Africa, which Mm -hmm. for me was a, a wonderful treat. And your wife was with you? She came and visited because she was still a full-time medical student. So we alternated and fortunately had uh, enough money from my research grant that I could visit her every couple months or she could visit me every couple months. We kept it together, so to speak, that way for for about nine or ten months. Mm -hmm. Senegal is really a fascinating place. It's at the westernmost edge of the continent. It really is like a hinge between the Arab North African Maghreb countries and the black African sub-Saharan coastal countries. Mm -hmm. And it offers a fascinating cultural mix of Arab and Islamic and black African and French historical influences. Mm -hmm. And it's a country with wonderful music and, and miles of coastline and a very sophisticated urban cultural environment in Dakar. A very long historical affiliation with France and Francophone culture, and a very interesting variant of uh, Islamic society, actually. In what way? Uh, well, in, uh, Senegal is about 97% Muslim. Mm-hmm. 
But the Senegalese, by and large, have a very liberal approach to Islamic life. And that's an interesting phenomenon uh, mm-hmm. to, to watch, a combination of Islamic practices and, and African practices mixed into one with a French overlay on top and a very tolerant environment for, for people, um, for, for instance, the Christian minority in the country. It's, uh, really, it's, a, it's a really interesting place. Mm-hmm. It really is. Now, what's the relationship of the Baha'i faith with, say, the Muslim majority in Senegal? Uh, well, the Baha'i community in, in Senegal is, is small. Mm-hmm. It's tiny, really, relative to the, the overall population. I think that, like the other religious communities in the country, it is, uh, it is recognized and, and tolerated and encouraged by the government. I think that the Baha'i community there, although small, embraces a diversity of, of ethnic and cultural groups within Senegalese society, which mm. for which it's really appreciated. Okay, so you got your PhD. What happened after that? When my wife had finished her medical training, we decided to move again. My wife being trained in, in the UK was then a very desirable prospect for Commonwealth countries as a doctor. And we were looking to turn a new leaf in a way and, and, and go somewhere entirely new. And it was the year 2000, and we felt inspired to uh, pull the curtain on the last five years. She got some job offers from Australia. We had initially thought of staying in, in England and living in London for a while, but Australia really became a focus quite fast, and we mm. decided almost on a whim to, uh, to go for it. She took one of these job offers, and we landed in Perth, Western Australia. Now, when you say job offer, is, is this for to do her yes, internship? Yes, that's right. This is for um, so-called junior doctor appointments in, in the mm-hmm. British system, where after medical school, doctors pursue an internship that can last anywhere from one to three or four years, and in which they work in a variety of fields before going on to a specialty. In this country, it's a little bit different. Doctors have a standard one-year internship after medical school and almost always proceed straight into a specialization after that without necessarily having more experience of the specialties themselves. Mm-hmm. In the British system, they really get to experiment for as little or as long as they wish before settling on on their choice. I see. So my wife worked in a a large urban hospital in in Perth, first in emergency in the ER and then in psychiatry and then in pediatrics each time for a few months or a six-month contract. I was just finishing my doctoral thesis at the time, so I was mm. working at home, and she was our breadwinner. Was it in Australia that she picked what she wanted to focus on? In yes, gradually, medicine? that's right. She she gradually started to narrow in on, on one or two of these specialization choices and became more and more interested in radiology and started to pursue training and specialization opportunities from that point on. Mm -hmm. However, they were not open to us there because we were not Australians, Uh, and we were not Australian residents. We were only temporary residents, so to speak. Much like uh, students or job seekers who come to this country on on a J-1 visa that is tied to the employer's pleasure. Right. 
when the contract ends, your visa ends, and you need to leave. It was that kind of arrangement for us, so we pursued it as long as we could for a couple of years, and then mm-hmm. it really was time for us to move on, and we felt ready to move back to the United States. Mm-hmm. As we were taking care of that and uh, applying for an immigrant visa for my wife and making plans to return to New England, I got a job offer of my own, this time with an agency of the United Nations to do work in the education field in in a developing country. Mm -hmm. We were expecting our first child, and my wife was going to be with him for his first year. I took the job offer, and we moved somewhat unexpectedly again, this time to Eastern Europe. Which country? Romania. We moved to Bucharest, the capital city of Romania. Mm-hmm. This was 2003 or 2004. We set up shop in, in Romania for, for this job of mine. So tell me about your job there. Well, I worked for a UN agency called UNESCO, which is the scientific and educational and cultural agency of the UN. It's sort of a diffuse mandate, but roughly this agency of the United Nations really focuses on many of the educational initiatives that we all have in common on this planet, such as Mm. universal primary education, the importance of world peace or peace education, the capacity development in science in developing countries, the concept of a world heritage Some of your listeners may be familiar with the World Heritage Sites or the World Heritage List that UNESCO compiles. Uh, This is the kind of thing they do, and they had a regional office for Central and Eastern Europe in Romania that Mm -hmm. focused on educational matters in that region. Mm -hmm. And being the only native English speaker in the office, I also became the publications officer. Because, as you know, the the publications of these kinds of places almost always are in English, mm. if they're international in scope. I learned a bit of a second trade, if you will, as an editor and publications manager. And once mm. again, for me to see a new variation on the theme of socioeconomic development, mm-hmm. to see many of these features of you know economic emergence and social change and the transition from one type of political rule to another and the kinds of social and cultural changes that that brought with it and it was really interesting to me to see Mm -hmm. it in a geographical context that I I was not familiar with of course I was very familiar with the African one but to see some of these patterns again in, in an Eastern European setting and to be able to understand a little bit about what the country and what Romanian society were were going through or had been going through in those Mm -hmm. last 10 years of the 20th century and now with their accelerated inclusion into the European community and the European Union most recently in in the last year was really, uh, really, again, an education. I, I, I Just speaking to you, I'm constantly reminded of how lucky I've been and how many different things I've been able to see and watch and and learn about. Mm-hmm. I'm very fortunate. Well, I think probably I'm guessing that the fact that you grew up with an international notion with your religion and your parents' outlook that the idea of venturing beyond your 
normal social context was something you could think about that maybe others would not think as perhaps. feeling a viable... Yes, perhaps, and that is probably one of my parents' great gifts to me. Mm-hmm. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, states that you know the, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens, mm-hmm. and my parents were crystal clear about that from day one mm-hmm. and raised me with an incredible diversity of people in and out of the house and... Mm-hmm around and in our travels and in their friendships and that was always a given and it remains one to this day and I I do believe that 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 is one of their legacies as Baha'is to to their family now that they have children and Mm. grandchildren and they themselves continue to live every day of their life in that line I think and the people they associate with and in their openness to anybody and everybody who wants to be with them essentially so you're right it has been a a wonderful gift Mm. and one that i i really take for granted i'm sure because Mm. it has never occurred to me that it could be otherwise perhaps my feeling of relatedness or of empathy or of commonality with people who are in walks of life that are extremely different from my own still remained Mm. As, as unlikely as that would seem on the face of it. Mm-hmm. What were the circumstances that you didn't continue in Romania? Well, my wife and I had this plan of returning to New England and continuing her medical training, and that didn't go away. It, it continued to, to come together, in fact, and lo and behold, she, she received a, a job offer for an internship in the Boston area, followed by a residency here in Western Massachusetts. And we consulted about it uh, at length and decided that this was an offer we couldn't refuse and that we had really been working toward and hoping for for a long time. Mm. So we we decided the time had come to return to the United States, and by then we we had her green card and we had some some savings, thankfully, after... (laughs) After that job of mine, and we had a child, and we had done so much moving around that in our particular case, I think the right thing to do was do a little less of it and not a little more. Mm. And here we are. That was two years ago, mm. and we're on our third now. I think, it's, well, I think it was the right move. Mm-hmm. So she's at Cooley Dickinson? Uh, no, she works at the Bay State oh, okay. in Springfield. Mm-hmm. And what are you doing? I have been working from home mm-hmm. as a freelance editor after I learned my trade in, in Romania mm-hmm. and as an education consultant in developing countries. Mm. I don't do much traveling right now, but I do manage to travel a couple times a year for no more than a week at a time. Mm. Uh, most recently, I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo about two months ago, in fact, for a really interesting initiative that a friend and I are are pursuing there uh, around the development of educational opportunity for Congolese children in the wake of the fighting and civil unrest that has been plaguing that country for years now and the breakdown of formal education and the current inability of the government to really provide that service. As a result, there's been quite an explosion of private educational enterprises, some good and some less good, but there has also been 
a real step forward on the part of the Congolese Baha'i community to provide better for the education of its own children. Mm. And there are currently some 50 or 60 Baha'i schools, that is to say, owned and operated by Baha'i institutions in the country or owned and operated by individual Baha'is or Baha'i families in Congo, which is a huge country, by the way, about the size of, of Western Europe. And it, it has almost no roads and almost no railroads left. Mm. And the only way to get around now is by plane, although you have to be careful which plane you get on uh, because mm. not all of them are maintained <laughs> or serviced. So mm. you need to be a little picky yeah. about which companies you fly with. Anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating project that, mm -hmm. that my friend and I are, are involved in. We spent some time with some of the Congolese institutions and groups of people involved in this development of a higher quality of education offered by the Baha'i community in the country to whoever wants it, whether children of Baha'is or, or, or any children any children and any families who want to make use of that service. So these are funded by Baha'i institutions and or Baha'i individuals? For the time being, on a basic level, what I and, and my, my partner are interested in doing is putting together a source of small interest-free loans for these kinds of projects to apply for and take advantage of for the purpose of improving their infrastructure, and the quality of the educational content that they offer. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about amounts of five to $20,000 to be spent and reimbursed over three to four or five years. Mm. Interest-free and used very clearly and, and quite strictly along specific lines of infrastructural and curricular development. Mm. I don't know if this will work, by the way, but this is, yeah. this is where we're heading. And I believe personally that it, it constitutes a real departure from some of the more negative and, and you know, even perverse effects of traditional development practice mm -hmm. in the type of relationships that can take hold between Western donors or Western sources and African recipients and, and all kinds of patterns of dependence dependency and, and entitlement and self-satisfaction on the part of the donor. donor and a type of relationships that, that at heart makes me uncomfortable because I, I don't think it's really dignified for either side. Yeah. Actually, the Baha'is have put out some statements in this regard about a new way of looking at social and economic development. Yes, been, that's right. been pretty clear about that. That's right. I, th I think that many of these types of initiatives that do occur in the Baha'i context are structured very differently mm. and are, are operating on a small scale and have a very different approach to the terms of exchange and the sources of expertise and the consultative nature of decision-making. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that there is a, a shift in practice that, that is occurring over time in, in the way that 
the Baha'i community and probably many others uh, approach this this question of, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are together as a human race. We want to be together. We want to help each other. We are all agreed on that. We just need to keep refining our strategies to make our practical approaches more consistent with, with those core spiritual truths yeah. and find ways around some of the negative effects that that can grow out of these types of relationships mm-hmm. and we all you know we we're all familiar with different instances of of that kind of phenomenon mm-hmm. many wonderful successes of course and and i don't mean in the least to to take away from those i'm only trying to talk about a a refinement in our awareness of each other perhaps mm-hmm. and a refinement in our awareness of the lengths that, to which we should go to to be truly meeting halfway. Mm. Equal partners rather as, than... As equal partners, absolutely. Yeah. Despite whatever differences we may have in material status or practical situations, which mm. ultimately are immaterial, we, we need to move beyond a a framework of of judgment that is based on material difference Mm. well daniel thank you very much it's been my pleasure thank you thanks for having me i hope you enjoyed that interview with daniel lincoln a baha'i currently living in western massachusetts who is a consultant for social and economic development projects for a copy of this and other interviews you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Children play with us
it comes Swords cover their hands Politicians laugh and drink Drunk to all Salvation roams the street Babies die before they're born Infected by the greed Now some folks say that we should be Glad for what we have Tell me what Crying late, 
about the world as it is Why must we go on hating? Why can't we live in bliss? Cause out on the edge of darkness There rides a peace train Oh peace train, take this country Come take me home again Oh peace train sounding louder Ride on the peace train Come on, the peace train is peace train, the holy roller. Everyone jump up on the peace train. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.